I don't know if you noticed this weekend, but baseball is back. And <laughs> for um, for many people, that's great news because if you're a baseball fan, of course, it's great news for obvious reasons. But it's also great news because there hasn't really been anything entertainment-wise, sporting-wise for the nation. And it's like, all right, something's finally happening. Yay! Uh, but what I was thinking about when I was looking at this message and these psalms, this theme of rhythm comes into play. And when I was thinking about rhythm and how can we talk about rhythm before we get to the text, it reminded me of baseball. Now, I know not everybody here has ever played baseball or has ever desired to. It's very, very difficult indeed. But I played baseball in high school. So I'm going to use an analogy that worked a lot for me. And this works really for anybody who's done anything sport-wise, physical-wise, including running. Um, all of these things you may know, especially music, take rhythm. And without rhythm, the worship team would have a train wreck up here. <laughs> Everyone playing their own tune, their own way, and we wouldn't have any idea where we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do with that. And so there's a misconception about sports. And that is that, oh, all you got to do is go out there and give it 100% every time and you'll do it. That's not true. There's a lot more to pitching than throwing the baseball as hard as you can every time. Actually, if you throw the baseball as hard as you can every time, you will not last very long and you will not be very effective. Most hitters can hit hard pitches. Fast pitches. They cannot always hit things in perfect location, things that are moving, things that are placed at the right place at the right time. And so what I learned in pitching, um, I was a starter, so I'd pitch for, you know, the long term, uh, is that rhythm was incredibly important to what I was doing. I would get on the mound and it wasn't just, okay, I'll take a step here and I'll throw right there. It's my entire body had to be in sync with itself. And when I was no longer in sync, when my legs weren't driving off the mound at the same time that my arm was in the right position, when my back wasn't following through on the pitch, when all these things weren't happening together, I would begin to fatigue and tire, and the pitches would be in the wrong places. That's why um, pitchers get wild as they start to get tired. It's not an arm thing. It's everything is out of sync. And so you practice and you practice, right? You learn the rhythm. And then when you're on that mound... You're, it's all a mind game at that point. 90% of pitching is mental. And you're battling the whole disappointment, the whole, I can't do this, the, I missed that pitch, what am I going to do now? Or they're taunting me, or all these things are going through your head. And so what you have to do is you have to establish a rhythm. You want the catch to give you the ball back right away. You want to get on the mound. You want to be ready to pitch. And when you're going good, there is a rhythm and a pulse and a pace that's happening. You're in your stride and you're king of the mound. And what what good hitters do when they notice a pitcher's in his groove is they will just, they will be there as if they're ready for the pitch. And then right before the pitcher's ready to pitch, he will step out of the box and ask the umpire for time. Why? It rattles the pitcher. You're in a rhythm. You're in a flow. You're about to go. You're mentally prepared. And then all of a sudden, this big interruption, you got to stop. You got to reset. That's rhythm. Rhythm's very important. When you run, you need rhythm. Your breathing, your legs, your heart rate, it all needs to go in a certain pace. You find your stride. But we don't live in a world with rhythm. 
That's why we have to fight for it. We have to find it. We have to practice it. We live in a world rather that is offbeat. Or let me give you two Hebrew words, tohu and bohu. Those are the two Hebrew words in the second verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was tohu and bohu. It was without form, it was void. It was off rhythm, out of sync, out of balance. And we've lived ever since the fall, we've lived in a tohu and bohu world. Everything that we do is often out of sync. It's out of rhythm with what the spirit in us wants to do. Jesus told the disciples, the flesh is willing, but the spirit is weak. Or in another way, Paul in Romans 7 said, look, I want to do the things of God, but there's another part of me that pulls me in the opposite direction. We are tohu and bohu. We need form, we need filling, we need a rhythm, we need a cadence to follow God with. And that's when we find our stride. So we need endurance through rhythm. Now, when we come to Psalm 4 and 5, we need to look at this in its context, all right? Remember, David is on the run. And you and I will often find ourselves in life on the run. So Psalm 1 and 2, to review, are our introductory psalms. They lead us into the Psalter, and they say, this is how you approach the other 148. This is what the other psalms are about. So Psalm 1 invited us, through meditation on Scripture, the psalms must be chewed upon and delighted in, meditated upon. Psalm 2 tells us that God has a king. The nations are rioting against God. They want to throw his yoke from off of them. They want to circumvent him and do their own thing their own way. But Psalm 2 says, guess what? God has a king and he set him up. You can either join and adore this king or you can rebel against this king. There's those options. So Psalm 1 calls us to meditation on the Psalms. Psalm 2 calls us to adoration of the king in the Psalms. That's the introduction. So the first Psalm proper is Psalm 3. And as we saw last week, the title of Psalm 3 says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. How do the Psalms begin? Well, we think, oh, it's going to be a nice peaceful meditation under that fruitful tree in Psalm 1. Ah, life. Nope. Psalm 3 says, it starts like life does, on the run. Life isn't waiting for us. Sometimes it's pushing us. It's kicking us. It's saying, too bad if you're not ready for that. Because here I am, and you better catch up and get with it. Psalm 2, we might think that life is all about the triumph of our king, and all we got to do is adore him. Well, Psalm 3 says, ah, actually, there's still a lot of bad guys in the world, and they're going to try to make it so that you cannot adore your king. They're going to try to disrupt life, and life's going to come at you and make you say, get running! None of this worship stuff. So in the land of prayer and praise, we find that often it starts with pain. We find ourselves running from Absalom. So we looked at how to do that last week, how to find our center. But this week... We continue with running. Um, so here's what some, so here's what commentators point out. Psalms three through seven are considered David's exile psalms. So in other words, in Psalm three, 
Absalom, his son, kicks him out of the kingdom, right? Well, four, five, six, and seven are also his prayers in this context. So these are the Psalms. These are the prayers of David on the run. And so we're going to continue to be on the run. And here's the question, friends. When you're on the run, at first, it's like fight or flight, right? You're going and it's all adrenaline. Like, I can't believe this is happening. And you're going hard and you're trying to make sense of everything and find the answers and and try to find your equilibrium. But if you keep going that way for too long, you're going to burn out. You're going to spiral out of control. You're going to sink into despair. You cannot live like that. We must, if we're on the run, we must find our stride. We must find a rhythm to life when the world and life is throwing offbeat rhythms in our way. The world is moving against the beat of God. How do we find God's beat in an offbeat world? That is what Psalms 4 and 5 want to say. So Psalm 3 was all about, look, you're going to be on the run, but here, here's how you center yourself in God. Psalms 4 and 5 say, all right, if Absalom's still chasing you, here's the rhythm to find your stride so you can endure. This is good news. So it may not be your son who's betrayed you. It may not be a literal Absalom, but there are other Absaloms in our life. There's busyness and demands. There's crisis. There's all kinds of things. You don't need to look beyond the news headlines to know, or the masks people wear, to know that there is a severe, desperate sprint in life right now to try to make sense and find normalcy. So what we need as Christians is rhythm. We need the language of prayer and praise to be our cadence. So Psalms 4 and 5 will give us that cadence. They will give us that beat. They will give us that rhythm. So let's look at it. Running with rhythm. Psalm 4. To the choir master... With the stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. So be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall your, shall my honor be turned into shame? How long? Will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. For Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Or maybe a modern vernacular, who will give us a good time? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh, because you have put more joy in my heart than they have. When their grain and wine abound. In peace, I both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 4. 
It's considered an evening prayer. So Psalm 1 and 2, we have introductions, meditation and adoration. Psalm 3 helps us when life is tough and we have enemies, helps us center ourselves. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. It's It was prayed um, in the evening, and you can tell that David here, he's talking in verse 4 about um, pondering in your own hearts on your bed. Verse 8, in peace I will lie down and sleep. So, if um, as I have, you might want to, above chapter 4, just put evening prayer right there in your Bible. Because Psalm 5 is morning prayer. So, chapter 5. To the choir master... For the flutes, a psalm of David. Wouldn't that sound nice? Just starting morning prayer with flutes. Nice little soft woodwinds. And you can imagine this one coming through the flute. Verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Now, it might say meditation in the New King James. That's not the same word in Psalm chapter 1. It's a different word altogether, which it has more of a groaning, grumbling sound. So, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. Oh, Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Or the New King James, I direct my prayer to you and look up. We'll talk about the reason for those differences there. So in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Okay, so after he gives us the morning prayer, Lord, in the morning, I'm going to direct my prayer to you. I'm going to, Lord, hear my groaning. The morning prayer, um, verse 4 through 6, which you just read, you hear a change in tone. God is unhappy with the boastful, with those who speak lies, with the deceitful. Okay? Their language, boastful, speaking lies, deceitful. This is not prayer and praise, like in the Psalms, the different language. But now... That beat is going to go to a positive beat. Verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Yahweh, in your righteousness because of my enemies. David needs leading this morning. Why? Absalom and the enemies are after him, right? Make your way straight before me. Now back to the other rhythm, the other beat. Negative. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. Imagine that. What a picture. Your throat is an open grave. What's coming out? Death, destruction, violence, lies. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Now back to the positive beat. Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. 
Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. For those who love your name may, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. And so here Psalm 5 ends by harking back to Psalm 3, where we saw Yahweh was a shield around us. So Psalm 4, evening prayer. David's being hounded by Absalom and those trying to kill him. He's praying for a good night of sleep. Psalm 5, morning prayer. He wakes up. God, make your way straight before me because I have enemies and all around me are the boastful, the liars, the flatterers, the deceitful. There's no truth in their mouth. Their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. That's what, that's what's around me. So Lord, direct me in your way of prayer and praise today. So evening and morning prayer. Psalms 4 and 5. Okay. So these Psalms are going to establish for us rhythm. First, I want to point this out in three ways. First is the word Selah. Now, if you're on the newsletter, you already read a little bit about Selah this weekend. But to point it out that it's in Psalm 4. And you'll see right at the end of verse 2, you have this word in my book, in my Bible, it's in italics. It says Selah. And then at the end of verse 4, it says Selah. Now, the use of this word has been lost. Nobody actually knows precisely what it means. But the majority of the guesses is that it's clearly being used to direct the worshipers and the prayers in what's going on. So it's believed that Selah is a pause. It's a break. It's space in the music to give everyone a breather. Now, Psalm 1 and 2, no Selahs. Psalm 3, the one where we're on the run, begins with the first Selah, right? Verse 2, Selah. Verse 4, it says Selah. And at the end of verse 8, Selah. Three breathing breaks in Psalm 3. Because when you are running and sprinting for life, you need to catch your breath. Psalm 4 has two Selahs, as we just saw. Psalm 5. No say laws. Psalm 6, no say laws. Psalm 7, at the end of David's running prayers, there's just one say law at the end of verse 5. So, 3, 2, none for a while, 1. I point this out because when we first confront the crisis or we're in the midst of the busyness or Absalom has reared his head in our lives, you're out of breath trying to find your footing, trying to find your center in God. You're out of breath. And we need the Psalms say, hey, pause and breathe. And we do. And we find that by evening prayer, we're breathing a little better. And then when we get a good night of sleep and we wake up in verse in chapter five, we've caught our breath. We're resting in God. The say laws disappear until the end. And there's just one, one need for a breather. See, this is the rhythm. If we begin to learn when life is first rearing its head at us and pushing us into flight, if we learn to find those breathing spaces, we will be better off for the long haul. Learn to find and carve out some Selah. Make that part of your stride and your rhythm and you will have more endurance. That's one thing we see. The second 
is um it's been it's maybe apparent up to this point but it's now time to say it the psalms are written in poetry they're not narrative stories they're broken up into short lines like poetry is because what happens is when you come to the psalms it's harder to race your eye across the page every time the line breaks you have to stop and re-gear yourself for the next line. Stop. Re-gear. It's almost like the typewriter. You have to regroup. Poems are meant to slow the reader down and to pay attention, to observe words where they are. Because in poetry, every word matters. Poets don't waste words. They're not long-winded. They choose their words with craft. They place them perfectly, like a parsley leaf on a finished meal. And they want you to notice and to take one line at a time. The Psalms are not things that you just scan with your eyes. It's one line, one line, one line. The Psalms are giving us rhythm, one step, one line at a time. Now, I've mentioned in passing, and I've even had some a uh, couple people say, wait, what did you mean by that? So it's time to say it. Hebrew poetry is not like American poetry, where we like to rhyme things. You end with a word that um, the rhyming schemes are like A, B, B, A. That means the A lines rhyme with each other, the B lines rhyme with each other. There's different patterns, A, B, A, B, A, B, or A, B, C, A, B, A, B, C. So there's different ways to rhyme, right? Different ways to use the lines. Hebrew poetry works differently. So what they do is you take the first line, we'll call it A, and they use what's called parallelism. So line A and line B parallel themselves in a specific way. Not always the same way. So let's talk about the ABCs of Hebrew poetry. The ABCs of parallelism. What happens is this. A. Sometimes line A and B are antonyms. They're antonyms. For example, if you look at chap- Psalm 1, verse 6, you have a good, I'm going to use chapter 1 as our example here. Psalm 1, verse 6, you see line A and line B are antonyms. They're opposites. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Right? That's parallelism. Line A and line B relate, this time as opposites. Right? So that's A. B. Build. Sometimes line A and B are building off of each other. Okay? So let's look. Oh, there's a lot of examples here. Uh, Look at Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man um, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So we'll call, for example's sake, we'll call that A. Walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now look at B nor stands in the way of sinners. Now see, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now you notice that progression. He's walking, he's standing, he's sitting. Line A is built upon by line B, and line B is built upon by line C. There's a progression. Um, Notice also verse 3. There's five lines. So we're going to go up to, what's that? A, B, C, D, E. So we're going to go up to E, okay? Look at line A. 
He is like a tree. It's now going to build. Line B. Planted. A planted tree by streams of water. Line C. That yields its fruit in its season. Line D. Its leaf does not wither. And line E. In all that he does, he prospers. You see how all five of those lines are building on each other. First, you have a tree, and now it's being described with ever-increasing flourishing. So this is parallelism. Each line is playing on itself. This time, they're building. Um, so that's uh, A, antonyms, opposites. B, they build on each other. Sometimes it's through cause and effect, that way to build. Like, look at um, verse 2, Psalm 1-2. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. Now, you might say, well, wait, how do I delight in Yahweh? How do I do A? How do I delight in the law? B answers A. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So in parallelism, in this case, it's teaching us, line B teaches us how to do line A. How do I delight in the law? I meditate. All right? It's Hebrew poetry. So antonyms, um, they build on each other. Or C, um, they are copies of each other. And for example, you can look at verse 5, Psalm 1-5. Line A is going to be copied by line B. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment. Okay, so B is going to sound just like A. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Those two lines are saying the same thing in two different ways. So they're copying each other. All right? So there's a couple of examples for you. Um, of how Hebrew poetry works, and now how you can read the Psalms. Sometimes the next line is going to help you understand that first line. So that's what we mean by parallelism. Look for the A, B patterns, and sometimes they go up to E, but that's not normal. So the reason I show you guys this is, one, you're Calvary Chapel and you like to study the Bible. So yay, you guys got some good poetry lesson there. But also, it's not just a neat history lesson about, oh, cool, I'm going to go try my craft at Hebrew poetry. It's to show you that the Psalms themselves, by reading them, by looking at them, by studying them, by meditating them, are set up to give you rhythm. Every line of the Psalm is balanced by the other lines. There is rhythm and movement and flow in the Psalms. And so when we are off balance, when we're being rushed, when we need to find rhythm for the run, go to the Psalms. They're made to give you some breathing space. They're made to help you find that cadence of walking in God's world in an offbeat world. So, Selah, the poetry of the Psalms. And finally, the third, not this is not the end of the message though. Um, the third way that we see rhythm here is, I hope you had seen this coming, the pattern of evening morning prayer. Psalm 4 is the p.m. prayer. Psalm 5 is the a.m. prayer. That's a pattern. It's a rhythm. It's a rhythm of life. You go to bed praying. You wake up praying. But wait, there's more. We live in an offbeat world that's out of rhythm. It's tohu and bohu, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was tohu and bohu, without form, without void, or and void. But what does it say in Genesis 1? Well, you can go to Genesis 1 and notice that there's a pattern. 
And you probably know this already if you think about it. There's a pattern through the first chapter of Genesis. Verse 3, God begins to address Tohu and Bohu. He says, look at this. Let's give some rhythm to this place. And what happens as a result? Creation, and it is good. And the seventh day when God does what? Rests. This is what we need when we're on the run is rest. So we need rhythm to get to that rest. Look what God does. Day 1, Genesis 1 verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And you skip to the end of verse 5. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Every day is going to do this. Look at verse 6. And God said, same exact way it started. Let there be. Now look at the end of verse 8. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 9. And God said, uh, let the waters be gathered together. Um, in verse 11, this, this, this day goes a little longer. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. But then look at the end of, look at verse 13. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Okay, you've had three days as an example. You see what's going on. Every day begins with, and God said, let there be, fill in the blank. And then every day ended with, there was evening, there was morning, give the number of the day. God established the world. He took the tohu and the bohu and he put it to a rhythm. He gave it a beat and a cadence to march to. And there's order all throughout the creation till it comes to its climax and its rest in chapter 2 when it says that God rested on the seventh day. Now everything's in order. Now everything has a rhythm. Now everything has a place and a purpose. So all is at rest. Not, nothing is going to happen anymore, but everything is as it should be. You can rest in the song because you trust the musicians are going to take it somewhere. That kind of rest. It's as it should be. Everything fits. It's shalom. It's complete and peaceful. That is what we get with God's creating. And so what we see in chapters four and five of the Psalms is evening prayer, morning prayer. It isn't just some weird, oh, you got it backwards. You start in the morning with prayer and you end the day with prayer in the evening. No, the Psalm or the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament looks at evening as the beginning of a new day because that's how God created the world. He created it evening, morning, first day, evening, morning, second day, evening, morning, third day. So they will go to bed with evening prayer and they'll rise with morning prayer. Also, um, you guys may know that in Numbers chapter 28, you can look at it later, but Numbers 28, the first eight verses there, God commands Israel to give an evening and morning sacrifice, a burnt offering. Every morning, every evening, these prayers are becoming the sacrifice as well. We're giving ourselves. Did you notice the words there um, of offering? Um, it was in verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. And in verse 3 of chapter 5, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So 
that's also mimicking the morning and evening sacrifices. But here's the thing. God created the world with rhythm and order. And so when we find rhythm in our lives, we will thrive like he made the world. Evening, morning. Some of us aren't good. Let's just just say our nation is not good at living with rhythm. We go to bed in the evening. Most people look at their cell phone as the last thing they see before they close their eyes and go to bed. Not David. Not David when he's on the run. He don't have time for that. He needs God. And he ends the day with prayer. Oh, and he also, by the way, apparently can lay down and sleep even though he's being hunted. That's crazy. One of the problems is we end our day with artificial light. And that not only is it setting our heart to focus on something other than God, it's nothing wrong with looking at your screens and all. Absolutely nothing wrong. Nor is there anything wrong with doing it in the evening. But if we're doing this so close to bed, we're actually not only setting our hearts upon something else, but science says you're messing with your sleep cycles. And so even science would suggest you will get a better night of sleep if we would focus on God before we go to bed than on the news or catching up on the latest episode of your season or scrolling through your phone, whatever you do on your phone. That's that's your thing. Here the psalmist ends with evening prayer. By the way, the way that we... Um, speaking of sleep here, he talks about in verse 8, in peace I both lie down and sleep... Um, what we give up sleep for shows what you love. You think about that? What you're willing to stay up late for, what you're willing to sacrifice sleep for shows what you love. So when you stay up late watching something, you really must have loved that. When you stay up because your kid can't sleep, you must really love them. Because you know how bad you want to go back to sleep. You, some, a lot of you might remember that. Or maybe one of your parents, you know, you're taking care of. Or it's a late night conversation with someone. What you stay up for shows you what you love. But on the flip side, what we wake up for shapes what we love. So here in chapter 5, the psalmist wakes up with prayer. Many of us don't. Many Americans wake up, guess with what? The same thing they went to sleep with. The phone doesn't help that your alarm's on it. And I don't count that. If you're just hitting the off button, you know, it's it's a tool. That's nice. But if you hit the off button and say, oh, let's see what's happened in the world while I was sleeping. So you're developing a pattern when you wake up that's going to shape your love. And if we wake up thinking good things come from a glowing screen, guess what you're going to start doing in life? You're going to start seeking good things from glowing screens. How you wake up shapes what you love. It develops a pattern. There's something called imprinting, where if you take a baby animal, um, it will be even a wild animal and you rescue it, it will imprint you as its caregiver. And so it will begin to seek care from humans. And that's why you can't put that baby animal back into the wild. It's learned from the human. It's imprinted into you, the human. Well, we think, if you think about it, every day we wake up, we are imprinting ourselves to whatever is going to give us help. 
And how we start our day is how we imprint our hearts. Spurgeon, I try to find the quote. I can't find it. I'm pretty sure it was Spurgeon. He said, I spent too much time looking for this quote. You know how Google can be. It's not a good thing to look for if you can't find it right away. But anyway, Spurgeon said somewhere, I, the first face I see every day is Jesus Christ. What imprinting that would be. What if the first face we saw every morning was Christ? And it wasn't something on our phone or some sort of, oh no, I got to literally rush into my job today. What if there was some Selah? What if there was morning prayer? What if instead of the phone, we opened the Bible first thing in the morning and just read a verse or just closed our eyes and said a prayer before we go up and start making coffee and saying, oh my goodness, I got to get going. What if we imprinted ourselves with Christ as the one from whom good things come? So what you stay up for shows what you love. What you wake up for shapes what you love. This is part of the rhythm that we need in our life. Setting ourselves up with the language, the wording of prayer and praise. That will give us the rhythm we need. Okay. Well, you might say, Pastor Brandon, evening prayer, morning prayer. Really? That's pretty repetitive. You can just say these ones. Every evening and morning, it's pretty good. I mean, you're sticking with the Bible's evening and morning prayer. But isn't that repetitive? Isn't there a more clever, fresh, exciting way for me to find rhythm in my life? I mean, seriously, after a month, isn't it going to get kind of like, now what do I do? See, this is the problem is a lot of us want excitement when what God is really trying to say is rhythm is developed by repetition. Drummers know this. Musicians know this. Pitchers know this. Runners know this. Anyone who find, anyone who finds rhythm in life has found it not naturally, but by repeating what they needed to do to get that beat in. Repetition. Evening prayer, morning prayer. Evening prayer, morning prayer. Evening prayer, morning prayer. Okay, Brandon, I did that. Now what? Don't stop the rhythm. You'll stop the flow. Keep going. Evening prayer, morning prayer. See, we want quick fixes today. We want something to solve this now. I'm on the run. I need Absalom dead. Show me how to kill him now. <laughs> David's like, no, actually, God, I'm going to do evening prayer, morning prayer. I'm going to find rhythm and I'm going to let God take care of Absalom. I need to control what I can, my internal life, my internal world. So evening, morning, evening, morning, here's my rhythm. God, 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 evening, morning. Just like he created the earth, something good came out of that. Rest came out of that. Yes, yes. Repetition brings rhythm and rhythm brings rest. That's the point. That's what we're being given here. How do you find rhythm? You do the same thing on repeat. And why? Because it will give you rest. This is rhythm in an offbeat world. This is running with rhythm so we don't lose our balance, trip and fall flat on our face or run out of breath and find life overwhelming us. We need rhythm. And so I want to show you guys two ways that we can practice this rhythm this week. And please don't think that this week is enough for the rest of your life. (laughs) And this is, um, I did not, 
I honestly did not set out to try to say, well, how can I fit my own practices in here? They kind of leapt out at me, and I hope and trust that you will see the same. So these are prayers I do, um, and Christianity has done for 2,000 years, but unfortunately, we have of late stopped talking about these practices because the world has started to use these words, and whenever the world uses some words, we say, oh no, oh no, 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 we can't do that. But please, friends, Let's not let them steal what we've been doing since the Psalms, all right? So I'm going to say some words that maybe ring red flags in your head. I need you to see that these are not red flags. Somebody told you to think that way. I want the Bible to tell you how to think. We need to reclaim our tradition and our our roots in our own Christian history. So I say all that so that you don't get uppercut here in a moment. All right. So two ways we can pray evening, morning. In the evenings, my dad told me that he liked to lay down at night and kind of go through his day and just kind of revisit it with the Lord and just kind of, and he would somewhere in that prayer, just drift off. I thought that was cool. He was literally evening praying himself to sleep. Um, I had no idea what, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, that's what dad does. I don't have a problem falling asleep. I'm fine. Um, but then I learned about St. Ignatius of Loyola. He was one of the saints at the same time as Martin Luther. We just never hear about him because, well, the Catholics talk about him, but we talk about Martin Luther, who got it right. Well, St. Ignatius was actually, he led a lot of prayer schools. And he he had, um, I, he didn't invent this, but he made it t- popular by sharing it with other Christians. He called it the examine. And what it was is it was an examination of your life. So what you do in the examination is just what my dad taught me. You just revisit the events of your day with God. You're looking at what you did this day and what happened to you through God's eyes. You're saying, God, as I revisit my day, visit it with me. Show me what I missed. Show me where I erred. Show me where I can improve. And so you and God get to review what you did today. It's an examination of your heart. And so when you look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, I actually just wrote in big yellow um, highlight because I thought, wow, that's so cool. This is examining. David is practicing examination here. Read verse 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your bed and be silent. What's David doing? Well, when Absalom invaded Jerusalem and took the throne from David? You think David was totally chill with that? Or do you think he was angry? I I know I would be angry. And so he's in the wilderness and Absalom sent some men to surround him and go after him. If you read the story, you can get all the details. What's David thinking? He's going to bed that night? Not at peace at all. He's more like thinking... I taught Absalom every trick he used. I was grooming him to be my successor, and this is how he repays me? Who does he think he is? That's how he's going to bed. Be angry. Yeah, I'm angry. And actually, that's not wrong. If we have no anger, you have no love. If you're not angry at the injustice of the world, you do not love the people of the world. Anger is not a sin. Therefore, the psalm here says, be angry. Just don't sin. 
In other words, you let God have your anger so that you don't take the anger out on creation or on people. So here's David going through the examination, going through his day. Ooh, anger is rising up. Yep, that's there. Through the examination, he discovers, I am ticked off. And then God counsels him. Good, David, good. Because, yeah, Absalom's not right. You should be mad. But don't sin, David. Watch your step. So what's David doing now? Praying, God, help me to be the right man in this situation. And so he's pondering on his bed in silence, letting God examine his day with him. That's examination. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. So you're seeing things and you're just saying, okay, God, I give that to you. Oh no, yeah, that happened. I'm worried about that. Not a good thing to do when you're going to bed. Don't be worried about things. When you're going to sleep, you are shutting your control over the world off and giving it to God. It's your sacrifice to him. And it says, so offer right sacrifices and trust Yahweh. So what you have to do is you go through the examination. You say, all right, God, I can't control these things now. I'm giving them to you while I sleep. And then you don't have to wake up and say, what happened in the world while I was sleeping? Immediately on your phone. If you go to bed trusting God, you can wake up in his care. And so the examination is one of our ways to offer these sacrifices to him. A sacrifice is something you give to God on the altar and then you watch it disintegrate into smoke and it goes up to him. Nothing you can do about it anymore. It's up to him. That's the idea. So that's evening prayer, the examination. And you may find it um, a delight actually to see, you know what? Wow, I missed so many opportunities to love people today. It's not just, oh, I did something wrong. It's what didn't I do? You know, the old language, they call it sins of omission and sins of commission. The sins I do and the things I don't do are also sins. Well, the examination will show us. And guess what? You will be more aware of it next time it comes in your life. That's what the examination does. So, God, gaze on my life. Let's examine it together. Evening prayer. Now, morning prayer. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. So he's waking up and he's doing what you guys do. Morning devotions. And sometimes it's a literal groan. Oh, Lord. As you get out of bed or as you reach for the coffee cup. We know how mornings go. Even for young people. Um, my king, my God, for to you I pray. Okay, so here we go. Verse three. Oh, Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. Real quick, we're going to have to do some translation work. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Or New King James, um, in the morning, uh, do I direct my prayer to you and look up? All right, you'll notice in the New King James, if you're reading from the New King James, I know a lot of you guys like the New King James, the word prayer is in italics. You see that? If you have the New King James, they will put some words in italics. That's not for emphasis. Like, hear my prayer! It's... Italics mean it's not in the Hebrew. That's what the italics mean. The italics are the translators supplying words to make sense of the verse. So when you read, I direct my prayer, the word prayer is not in the Hebrew text at all. So there's a start, okay? So the English standard, the one I'm reading from, the ESV, said, well, we're going to guess that it's sacrifice. To you, I direct my sacrifice instead of prayer. These are guesses. But here's why they guess the word sacrifice. 
The word prepare or direct in the New King James. To you I direct my sacrifice. To you I prepare a sacrifice. The word prepare or direct talks about arranging the parts of something and laying them out. So many translators believe that what's being talked about here is what you would do on the altar as you give a sacrifice. The way you dissect the burnt offering and put the parts on there. That David is saying, this is what I'm doing in the morning. Is I'm dissecting my life. I am the offering to you. So I'm preparing. I'm directing my life in such a way that it's a sacrifice to you. So... You guys know I'm pretty fair. I sometimes side with New King James, but um, this is a case where I don't. I think that um, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch is perhaps the better way to read it, but you can't prove that necessarily. Let me show you what um, the message actually says. Don't worry, the message is okay to use to get some coloring, okay? I'm not studying the Bible from it, but I think um, the message really captures the wording here. Listen to what it says. I even wrote it right in my Bible. It was so good. Every morning, I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar. This is a literal translation of the word direct or prepare. Every morning, I lay out the pieces of my life on your altar and watch for fire to descend. In other words, so like, my life's your offering, but I don't like the fire. I let God light it. All right. So in the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Or I direct my prayer to you and watch. It doesn't matter. Here's the point. David in prayer is giving himself up to God and he's watching. He's looking up. He's waiting. This is morning prayer. It's called contemplation. Now, I don't know if that's like a buzzword for you, but when I was in seminary, they were teaching us, stay away from contemplation and meditation. It's all this Eastern stuff. And it's like, okay, and we were brainwashed. That stuff's bad. And so for a long time, I was like, oh, bad, nix that. Then I started reading the Bible and realized that they actually meditate, chapter one. And um, that contemplation is not some weird thing. It literally means to behold and look at in a thoughtful way. And then, guess what I read? I read Jonathan Edwards and that the Puritans were actually steeped in meditation and contemplation. I thought, the Puritans? If the Puritans did it, they're like the most biblical Christian movement in the history of the world. If the Puritans did this, well, pff, come on. And so, dating all the way back to the first, first early Christians that fled the Roman Empire when it, um, when Constantine became the emperor and claimed he's a Christian, they thought, Christianity is being sold off to popular people. They fled to the desert. They're called the Desert Fathers. Well, those, those came later, but the first nomads in the desert went out there to pray because they felt like Christianity was being cheapened by the emperor. And so they went out there to pray and they were full of contemplation and meditation and examination. This was the, what they established out there. So contemplation is the morning prayer that's being talked about here. When he says, I prepare my sacrifice or my prayer to you and I watch. That's when you are thoughtfully observing something and looking at something, you're contemplating, you're watching. And so here's how contemplation works. If examination is God looking at our life and showing us how it's going, contemplation is the other way. It's us looking at God's life. 
Jonathan Edwards said that contemplation is the Christian's most important duty on earth. He puts it above everything that the Christian needs to be in contemplation. And here's why. He said, because the saints in heaven are contemplating the face of God right now. That's what they're doing in heaven. They're contemplating the face of God. They're watching. They're beholding. They're gazing upon his face, his beauty. Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I desire and one thing have I asked, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's contemplation. The Psalms are full of contemplating the face, the glory, the beauty of God. And here in the morning prayer, Lord, I'm giving as an offering to you. I'm cutting it up and I'm giving out all the pieces to you so that I can watch you. I can gaze upon your goodness and beauty. Well, no better way to start the day than gazing upon the glowing face of Christ. So contemplation. How do you do it? I'd walk you through examination. You go through your day, right? Examination. Part by part that you recall. Letting God show you everything he needs to about it. Contemplation. Your sole focus is the face of God. So you wake up. You can read your Bible. It's totally fine. There's no rules here, okay? Just showing you how this works. You can read your Bible and meditate. That's what Psalm 1 says. Read the Bible and meditate on the scripture. And after that, perhaps, contemplation is where you take an aspect of God, Christ, and you focus all of your observation and attention on that alone. That's it? That's it. (laughs) You needed to teach us that tonight? Well, have you tried it? Do you know how long it takes to get to the point you're gazing on God's face alone? I don't know. It might be different for you. For me, I find about 20 minutes is when finally the thoughts stop intruding my head. 20 minutes. If you sit there in silence and try to focus on the face of God, watch what runs into your head. Absalom, busyness, crisis, news. Oh, I have those demands and those to do's. Oh, I should call this person. And don't forget when I do the laundry, there's a sock under the couch. And oh, we need it. We need more carrots for dinner tonight. And so those things hit your head when you begin to contemplate the face of God. And it takes me a good 20 minutes to throw every single thought out as it comes. But that's what the psalm is doing. It says, look, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice. Or, as the Hebrew says, I'm arranging the pieces. So, in my life, as I'm giving it to God to look at his face, all of a sudden, Brandon, your sermon's not ready. What do I do? Mm, I take that and I say, yes, it's not. And I throw it. I offer it to God and the smoke goes up to him and that's done. I don't think about that anymore. Oh, Brandon, don't, what do you think is going to happen to the school year? Do you think you're going to be teaching in front of a computer again? Or do you think you're going to have students in your classroom? Stop! I take the school year and all my concerns. I say, God, nothing I can do about it. And I let it turn into smoke. For 20 minutes. I'm literally most of the time is taking everything that bombards me and turning it to smoke. And then there's a moment when you feel the rhythm and the rest and you say, It's just me and God. Every temporary thing has been thrown out. And it's the eternal one and his eternal son gazing at each other. 
That's contemplation, friends. Examination, contemplation. You review your day, you renew your day. God gazes at us, we gaze at Him. This is the rhythm we need. Evening, morning, evening, morning. Examination, contemplation. God gazing at us, we gazing at God. Reviewing our day, renewing our day. Back and forth, back and forth. This is the rhythm of prayer and praise. This will give us the stamina for life on the run. It sustained David, who got back to the throne. It will sustain us. So we need these long-term solutions 